you know that we've in a series on the Ten Commandments. And today we're on commandment number seven. Commandment number seven as we're preaching through the Ten Commandments. And uh, before I get started, I will tell you as you're reading the Scripture as we, fought, we go along through there, um, some of them may be just a little bit different in their wording. And that's probably because I use the New American Standard, the NIV, and the New King James Version in my study. And I was writing this out and, and putting it down, but then Valerie just printed it in one version. So you may see a little bit of word difference there. Well, of all the commandments, number seven is probably the most mocked and ridiculed out of all of the commandments. Exodus 20, verse 14, simply says, You shall not commit adultery. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote, Chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. The most unpopular of Christian virtues. You know, there's many people, they simply cannot fathom why God would create a powerful drive like sex and yet be so restrictive as to say only in marriage. They just can't fathom that. But we all need to understand of all God's commandments, they're all designed to increase, not to decrease joy. You know, no one, no one resents a do not enter sign on the highway. You know, we don't go around and say, well, you know, that restricts my freedom and, and my joy in driving. We don't say that. Rather, we appreciate a sign that's posted enabling us to enjoy safe driving. That just sets fine with us. And so it should be with this command. Remember, sexuality was God's idea. He regulates it not to restrict, but to empower us to fully enjoy His gift. God gave water. We can't live without it. But too much water will drown. You know, God gave fire. We can warm by it or we can burn. By it. It's all in how you handle it. And God created us with a sex drive when um, expressed in marriage. It's a great blessing. But folks, outside of marriage, it's always destructive and it's always detrimental to us. You know, each year, hundreds of thousands of deer die after being struck on state highways. And the majority of road kills occur in the late fall. You know, in November when ducks are, or when, when the bucks are um, in rut. And they concentrate mainly exclusively on reproductive activities. And they're a lot less wary than normal. So they get killed a lot on the highways. Well, friends, deer aren't the only ones destroyed by a preoccupation with sex. Proverbs, the sixth chapter in verse 32 says this, A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. You see, God doesn't want us to be ignorant. He doesn't want us to be destroyed. So He gave us some rules to govern our sexual expression. So this morning, to learn something about it, we're going to jump right on into that. and We're going to ask the first question is this, What exactly is prohibited by the seventh commandment. Well, number one, adultery prohibits a married person from any uh, sexual expression with anyone other than his or her spouse. Adultery pre 
prohibits a married person from any sexual expression with anyone other than his or her spouse. Now, according to Matthew, the ninth chapter, verses 4 through 6, in the garden, God told Adam and Eve, He said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then, to emphasize this principle of exclusive marital intimacy, the Bible repeats it four more times. You know, but all of Scripture makes it perfectly clear that physical intimacy with anyone other than one's mate is something that is abhorrent to God. And we need to understand that. In the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. In the New Testament, it's legitimate um, grounds for divorce there. Last week we saw that life was sacred because life is from God. Well, friends, marriage and the sexual intimacy which God created for marriage is also sacred and from God. Folks, marriage is a lifelong commitment of sexual loyalty and exclusiveness. And Christian marriage is to be a symbol of God's loyalty and His faithfulness to His people. You see, God created sex only to be expressed in this secure environment where all fears and inhibitions, they fade. And where trust and vulnerability and communication grow. And whenever that's violated, people are reduced to mere mating animals and marriage becomes a bizarre joke. Folks, we need to see it the way God sees it. That's why we get back to the basics here. So we need to ask ourselves the question, how much wiser is God's way than our way? Understand that in adultery, we violate God's law, we violate our oath, and we violate another person. Bill Hybels says this, he said, more than sexual infidelity, it's the accompanying deceit, dishonesty, and disloyalty that shatters a marriage and threatens the esteem of the violated partner. Then he goes on to say, of course, the immediate reaction is always, how could you lie to me? Or how could you make mockery of my trust? Let me tell you something. Ministers who've counseled those who've lost a mate to death and counseled those that's lost a mate to adultery will say this, I can assure you that dealing with death is much easier. Every time. Moving along here. This command prohibits sexual immorality or fornication. The Greek word is pornea, from which we get pornography. And that word generally applies to all sexual expression outside of marriage. In particular, it refers to sex between singles. Now, let me be crystal clear about this. No matter what our culture accepts or what may feel right in the moment to you, the Bible says that all premarital sex is abhorrent to God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Revelation 21, they both say that no fornicators will inherit heaven. Esau 
You remember his story. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge, a bowl of soup. But many today, they're selling their souls for a few moments of pleasure. <coughs> Several years ago, we were embarrassed by the testimony of a baseball player, Steve Garvey. Maybe you remember that. While being sued by two different women whom he allegedly impregnated between his first divorce and his second marriage, Garvey said, I'll live up to my moral obligations, which I feel strongly about because I'm a Christian. Anybody see anything wrong with that statement? <laughs> the problem was he had not lived up to his moral obligations to begin with. You see, there's today almost a, a pervasive belief that a man and woman in a meaning relationship, uh, meaningful relationship, they have the, the right to sleep together. That's kind of the, the norm of thinking of today. And people say, well, you know, it's immoral to have sex with someone you don't know very well. But after you've dated and you're in love, sex is permissible. It's even expected. But folks, the Scripture says not. It says no to all Christian singles. Get this, 1 Corinthians 6 in verse 18. It says flee fornication or flee sexual immoral, um, immorally. For all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. You see, there's something about sexual sin that damages us more deeply than other sin. And then to finish that verse, uh, 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your, with your body. Now, there are some people saying, no, wait a minute, preacher. Calm down, slow down. That's just old-fashioned. Morality is different today. Well, that may be true with man, but friends, there is no shadow of turning with the one who judges us by his absolute moral standards. That's the way it is. The truth is, in every age, people have claimed to have moved beyond God's law. In Noah's day, they mocked the old-fashioned morality. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen? Folks, the Bible don't change. Man may change, but the Bible don't change. The Bible says in, in, in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. And in Matthew 15, verses 18 through 19, you know, Jesus said evil thoughts, murder and adultery and sexual immorality are all things that make a man unclean before God. Now, I know many single people, they protest and they say, this is just impossible. Well, folks, it's difficult, but not impossible. You see, Christians through the ages, they've endured prison, they've endured torture, They've endured death for their faith. Is God really asking too much of us to remain pure to marriage? You know, that you would not choose to expose yourself to the emotional scarring or the guilt or the comparisons or the wounded self-esteem, not to mention the, the physical peril that goes with it. Listen, according to the National Center for D Disease Control in Atlanta, 
there were almost 20 million new cases of sexually transmitted disease reported in the last year in the USA. That is almost 55,000 a day. Can you imagine that? Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 24, He who hears my words and obeys them is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And then in Proverbs 6 and verse 32, He who commits adultery lacks judgment. He destroys himself. It was the former first lady, Barbara Bush. She said, I married the first man I ever kissed. Now that's kind of rare, isn't it? You know, the, the, the immoral teens of today. And of course, don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing all teens because we have some good ones. There's some good kids out there raised by good Christian parents. But some of the things you see on the news and on the TV and stuff, you know, the immoral teens and singles, they say, but we love each other. Well, that's great. But Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You see. Um, the question is, who do we love the most? Who do you trust the most to know what's best for your life? The Bible says no fornicators will enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, this is very simple. This is not hard to get. God prohibits all sex outside of marriage. But that's just the beginning. Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28. Jesus said, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. He says it's, the sin isn't just in the act. It's in the wrong desire as well. Which brings us to our third point here. So God prohibits lust. Now, all of us notice attractive members of the opposite sex. And God doesn't condemn us for noticing and appreciating a pretty face or a muscular body or a shapely figure. He doesn't condemn us for that. The problem is in that second and third look or that fantasizing that goes with that look. Every year, Sports Illustrated magazines, the swimsuit edition, is the bestseller. And why do you think that is? It's easy to see. People say, well, it's just all innocent. It's just the playground of the mind. But let me tell you something, folks. The mind is in the front in the battle for purity. Sin always is entertained in the mind before it's acted out. So over and over and over again in the Scripture, the Bible warns us um, that God judges our thoughts and our motives. You see, Solomon said in Proverbs 23, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. But there is good news to all this doom and gloom here. And the good news is that God's grace can cover our lust. But we've got to get on the right road for that to happen. To overcome this struggle, you must take three bold steps here. And these steps are this. Confession, accountability, and determination. First of all, you must call a spade a spade, you know, confessing this area of your life as a sin. That's the first step. You've got to recognize it. Then you must reach out for help. You must make yourself accountable both to your spouse and a trusted brother or two. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 
4 and verses 9 through 12, you know, it says two is better than um, one. And a cord of three is not easily broken. Galatians, the sixth chapter, verse 1, you who are spiritual, restore those who have fallen. You see, if this is the sin that no one can talk about, then this is the sin that will continue to grow unchecked. See, it's truth that sets us free. It may make us miserable at first, but it, it sets us free. And finally, you must, with God's help, be determined to overcome this temptation. You see, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of self-control and purity. Job said in his 31st chapter, in verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully at a young woman. And then in Proverbs, the fourth chapter, in verse 25, it says, Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. You see, sexual purity begins by controlling what you think, which begins by controlling what we look at. Lust is a serious business. Dawson Trotman, he said this. He said, sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap an eternity. Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, the marriage bed is to be kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all sexually immoral. Well, folks, the truth is this. We all understand the seventh commandment. Our problem is living it. So this brings us to our second question. How can we maintain purity in such a permissive world, such a permissive society? Now, because of the power of sex, Satan has always been effective at tempting people in this area. And as you've heard me say before, Satan is good at what he does. You see, we all know that sex is the agenda for Hollywood and Madison Avenue. And there, all social taboos are just gone. So how do we, in such an environment, remain faithful to our spouse, to our values, and to our Lord? How do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked because I have a simple three-step plan I want to tell you about. First of all, Every day, recommit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Every day, recommit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, this is even more important than your commitment to your spouse. You see, your spouse, as good as they are, they won't always meet your needs. In fact, they may waver, between their, uh, waver in their commitment to you, but God is always faithful. Always faithful. Now, a Christian is one who's accepted Jesus as both Lord and Savior. We understand that. So one of the things we need to understand in that statement is, as Savior, He forgives our sins. But as Lord, we give Him the right to tell us how to live. You see, no matter what circumstances, no matter what feelings or temptations that enter our lives, God's will is that we be sexually pure. You remember the story in Genesis 39, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph was just a single man in his 20s when a beautiful and powerful 
um, woman grabbed him and pleaded with him to have sex. Now, Joseph could have easily said, hey, I'm young, I'm single and viral with normal desires. No man could resist this. I'm alone in a foreign land. No one will ever know. The values of this culture are different. I've been abused. My mother died when I was young. My father was overindulgent. My brothers hated me. I might as well just go on and do this. But instead, Joseph said, I cannot sin against my God. And he literally ran out of the house. And folks, that's the attitude and that's the action we need to emulate right there. Number two, work hard to keep your marriage interesting. Now, maintaining a dynamic marital relationship is not easy. It doesn't just happen. You know, it takes a tremendous commitment of time and energy. As a matter of fact, the primary reason that affairs develop is that there's a breakdown in the relationship somewhere. Communi communication deteriorates. Physical intimacy diminishes or becomes just routine. And the little expressions of care are eliminated. And the truth is, we just flat get lazy with each other. You see? So the Bible encourages the consistent expression of love in a Christian marriage. You know, God has called us all to work hard at our marriages. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2 through 6 or 7 there, just to paraphrase that to move along. It says, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. But also in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, as we are diligent, and we are consistent to meet one another's needs, we help each other to avoid temptation. That's what this scripture is telling us here. You know, Dr. Willard Harley, in his book, His Needs, Her Needs, identifies the top five needs of most men and most women. And the top five needs of most men are surprise, sexual fulfillment, recreational companionship, an attractive spouse, domestic support, and admiration. But the top five needs of women are affection, conversation, honesty and openness, financial support, and family commitment. Got a question for you quickly. Did you see any similarities between those two lists? No. No wonder marriage is so hard. You see, a man, he enters marriage thinking for some strange reason that he's married someone very much like himself. So he sets out about trying to meet his needs that he has in his wife. And then he gets real frustrated when she doesn't respond the way he would. And most women, they enter marriage thinking that they've married someone just like themselves. And they set out about to meet the needs that they have in a man. And she doesn't understand why he doesn't appreciate 
um, his efforts as she would. Well, that's our big dilemma right there. But the solution for all this is for all of us to get very serious about full-time business of learning what our spouse needs and then resolving with God's help to meet those needs to the very best of our ability, even if we don't have those needs or we don't fully understand them. Folks, that's the commitment and unselfish love that it takes to maintain and protect a marriage. In many marriages, both husband and wife, they're totally devoted to very important demanding projects. You know, the reality is the wife is the primary caregiver in most cases. She's the social director and the taxi driver of the children. She's taking care of the home and sometimes even works a secular job. And the husband, he's trying to be a good dad and a good leader in the home while he's doing his best at his career and doing the manly things around the house. So at this stage in life, when this happens, it would be very easy for you to just be cohabitating strangers in the same house because you're so busy. But you see, that's not what you want for your marriage. And that's certainly not what God wants for your marriage. You know, that's not cleaving to your wife and that's not becoming one flesh. Folks, God wants your spouse to be your best friend as well as the lover in whose love Proverbs 5 and verse 19 says you're to be continually captivated. Other versions say ravished or exhilarated or intoxicated there. Your mate ought to be your first accountability partner and your most trusted spiritual advisor. Let me tell you something. That kind of relationship, it takes planning and it takes investment and it takes work. It means putting dates on the calendar and then saying no to other people and things. It does take investment to keep a marriage alive and interesting. However, it pays great dividends. In a survey of 140,000 Americans, 82% said they were disappointed in their sex lives. Well, if your marriage is not as interesting as you'd like for it to be, you're probably, you have one of two problems. First of all, you're probably, you're not worked at it like you should. You know, your relationship, it must be a priority. You must set aside time to work at communicating and understanding and meeting one another's needs. But the second problem may just be unrealistic expectations. You see, our culture has so glamorized sex that if it isn't a constant obsession with you, we feel deprived. The truth is, after years of marriage, the mystery of sex, it does diminish. And the experience is not always ecstasy. But you know what? There's a great trade-off. And folks, frankly, the security of commitment, the freedom of expression, and the joy of intimate companionship are not worth sacrificing on the altar of infidelity. Amen? Step number three. Recognize how affairs begin and bail out early. Recognize how affairs begin and bail out early. Psychologist Jay Lindsay 
He's identified the 12-step process of affairs. You see, adultery doesn't just happen. Um, and for people with moral convictions, an affair is almost always at the end of a gradual downward spiral. Well, here's the 12 steps, and I printed them for you in your outline. Readiness. You know, things, are going, things aren't going very well at home. You know, our needs are not being met, and we fail to appropriately communicate that to our spouse. And then alertness. You know, there's an increased watchfulness of the opposite sex. And we rationalize, it's only flirtation, it's only a fantasy. And then third, innocent meeting. You know, we connect with someone through a common activity like church or work or a party. And then fourth, intentional meeting. A meeting occurs because we've monitored the other's path. We rationalize, it's just a game to liven up my day. And then number five, there's public lingering. We talk with people to the exclusion of others, rationalizing it's okay, we're in public. And then private lingering. It begins in a group context, but it continues after others depart, and we say, well, the others have left us alone. And then purposeful isolation, a pre-planned private meeting. You know, this is time alone. This time alone is for, we say, a legitimate purpose. You know, we need to work together on a report, or I'll drop this material by at your house tonight. Then there's pleasurable isolation, pre-planned time alone, just for fun. You know, we all need friends. It just so happens to be my friends of the opposite sex. Then affectionate embrace. Everybody needs a little hug, and there's nothing sexual about that. It's okay to express support. I don't get any, get any um, support at home. Passionate embrace. The hug communicates more than just support. Then there's an erotic quality, and we rationalize, well, we just got carried away. It won't happen again. Then capitulation, number 11. What we said would never happen, happens. And we say, well, it's partly my spouse's fault. He or she's not meeting my needs. And then there's acceptance. We admit we're having an affair, saying, but we love each other so much. We're so right for each other. My marriage was really never right. And Dr. Lindsay goes on to say this, at this point, confrontation or intervention is of little value because nothing and no one else matters except the affair. And people are totally blind to what their immorality is doing to themselves and to those that they claim that they love. Folks, if you or someone you know of is somewhere on these 12 steps as a child of God and as a respect for your mate and your family, bail out now. And give that advice to anybody that's in that situation. The Bible says flee fornication. Bail out. Studies suggest that up to 50% of husbands and 35% of wives have affairs. And is there anyone in this room who has never broken the seventh commandment in their mind? Maybe you stumbled and no one knows. Maybe you stumbled and everyone knows. The difference between a successful and an unsuccessful person is that the successful person got back up the last time they got knocked down. And beloved, if you or someone you know have fallen in this area of your life, I want you to know that Jesus still loves you and He wants to lift you up. 
He once said to an adulterous woman that was laying at his feet, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Folks, if you just confess and repent of your sin, Jesus will forgive your past and give you his power for your future. Folks, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. And Father, you created us. You know how we work. You, you know how you put us together. And Father, you give us guidelines. And if we would follow those guidelines, things would just work out so well for us. But we slip. We're not perfect. And God, you even provided for that. You provided a way that we could make it right with you again when we do slip. And we give you thanks for that because without your grace, none of us would have a chance. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.